Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Taking Aim at the Perceptual Side of Motor Learning, Exploring How Explicit and Implicit Learning Encode Perceptual Error Information Through Depth Vision. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez, and co-authors, Professor Jordan Taylor and Dr. Carlo Campanoli. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie. And hi, Carlo, and hi, Jordan. It's such a great honor to have you today. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun discussing motor control. And uh, as you know, when we think about motor control, we typically think about the motor aspects of a behavior. But we don't realize, you know, how many other computational processes have to be involved in order to execute a movement. For example, you know, some of these processes are learned, like riding a bike or playing an instrument. But when you play an instrument or you're riding a bike, you have to integrate all these learned skills with the actual movements. And they have to be adapted to the environment and also, of course, to the internal state of uh, the organism. Now, in the study that you published in the Journal of Neurophysiology, thank you so much, you actually explore how explicit and also implicit processes contribute to motor learning and uh, in the context of visuomotor adaptation task. And I think why, why this is so important is because, you know, often when we think about motor output, we forget how important visual input is and how it has to be integrated and, and how this is actually happening in particular with space uh, perception, is really largely unknown. So maybe before we get talking about the bigger implications, maybe Carlo, why don't you start with telling us your experimental paradigm and how you studied the integration of visual error information into region movements and also what are the key results of your study? Go ahead, Carlo. Sure, happy to. Um, hi, Nino, and uh, thanks for inviting me and Jordan. This is a great pleasure to be here. So this was an entirely virtual reality type of study that we conducted. Um, so we, we used the, uh, the HTC Vive VR kit, and we basically immersed our uh, students, our subjects, in a virtual environment where they, where they did two tasks. Um, what we did was we designed an experiment that included a perceptual task and the motor task. The idea between them sorry, the idea for them to be that we wanted to compare their perceptual estimates with the way that they would show motor learning in the motor task. And so the perceptual task essentially consisted of a very simple judgment in which um, the participant would see a dartboard uh, at the end of a hall in front of them. And they were just required, they were asked to express uh, how wide the diameter of this dartboard appeared uh, to them. And this dartboard would be visible at two, dist two different distances, um, at one meter, which is pretty close to the, uh, to the body, and then seven meters, which is pretty far away. In fact, it's not reachable. So they were looking at this stimulus, and then using the keyboard, they would toggle between the scene where the stimulus was visible and another scene where they would see just uh, basically a carpet in, a non in, a, in an otherwise nondescript environment. And on the carpet would be a little strip, black strip that they'd had to squeeze or, or stretch to basically express how wide the dartboard looked in the other scene. 
and they were able to basically toggle between the two scenes as many times as they wanted. So they, they were presented with the scene, with the stimulus at the end of the hall, they would take a look and then press the keyboard switch to the carpet scene with the, with the black strip, stretch it or expand it. And then they could go back and take a look at it as many times as they wanted. And the key manipulation here was that in addition to the stimulus being presented at two different distances, um, they would also see the same dartboard in two different quote-unquote depth environments, which is in one case, the dartboard would be just floating in front of them, uh, just in a, in, a, in a completely abstract gray environment. Uh, and in the, in the other condition, they, it would actually be embedded into a, a, a tavern, a, an actual bar um, that, we, uh, that we designed for the experiment. And so uh, the, the scene was, 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 was on scale one-to-one. -one, so uh, it was scaled according to the body was like just being there. Um, and the same dartboard at the same distance would be just basically looking as if, as if it was hung against the wall of, of this bar. Uh, so they had two different depth conditions, two different distances, and they were making these judgments. And that's basically it for the perceptual task. Now for the motor task, we basically immersed, we, we grabbed the same participant and we immersed them in the same scene, the same two scenes, in fact, so the, the no depth and the depth condition. But the task in this case was to sort of reach out uh, from the body in a gesture. So by sliding a controller on a tabletop um, to mimic a center outreaching that's going, that's going in the forward direction. So it starts off from close to the chest and then moves along the, the sagittal plane outwards in the direction of the dartboard that's looking in front of you. And as you would cross a certain distance with the controller uh, of 10 centimeters, a little cursor would appear at the same distance as the target. And it would give you an, a, a sense of, would give you a feedback basically, would tell you how accurate you were with your, with your reaching direction. So if you were exactly, a, you know, exactly good at playing this, this, this virtual version of a darts game, uh, then you would basically hit smack bang into the, the bullseye uh, or otherwise elsewhere, depending on, on, your, on your skill, I guess. Um, now, the design for the, for, the, for the motor task was slightly more complicated because we wanted to introduce a, uh, not only the depth dimension as we did for the perceptual task, but also a more learning dimension, as in we wanted to distinguish two types, two different types of learning, um, an explicit learning and an implicit learning. So generally speaking, all participants played this game of, of sort of simulating and we can we can talk about this, but simulating a darts game, either in the in the in the in the in the no depth scene where the where the stimulus would only be visible against nothing, or in the depth scene where the stimulus was visible against the um, uh, in the inside the tavern, but then half of the group um, would uh, would receive a feedback that was consistent with their direction of the hand. So if they hit, they if they reached uh, too much to the right, they would see the the dart. Uh, they will see the cursor, the feedback appearing to the right and so forth. So half of the group received the, received the feedback that was consistent with, with the direction of their, of their reaching and then perturbed such that if they, they, saw, they saw the cursor landing uh, at a certain distance uh, from the target relative to their reaching distance. So 
if there were if there were aiming straight away and we we manipulated the the feedback so that it would fall a few degrees uh, of visual angle to the left uh, then they would see their cursor appearing slightly to the left relative to the target or to the right depending on the sign of the of the perturbation and their task was to learn this perturbation and then slowly um, attempt to counter it uh, the other group uh, on the other hand also received an initial baseline series of, uh, of trials with, with vertical feedback, but then they enter into a clamped mode, quote unquote, where irrespective of where they would uh, reach with the hand, the target would always appear where we wanted it to appear. And critically, the same type of perturbations uh, were applied in both cases, only in the clamped condition, um, the offsets, the, the, the subject didn't have control over them, whereas in the, in the explicit uh, moral learning condition, uh, the offset could be countered by the, by the participants. Now, one last bit of information with respect to the moral task is that the, the group that received veridical, veridical feedback plus the offset and, the, and the, who were able to counter it also saw the target appearing with a certain delay relative to when they had moved 10 centimeters away from the body. And this was because we wanted to, uh, we attempted to boost the contribution of the explicit re-aiming at the cost of the implicit adaptation. Uh, whereas the, the, the clamped group, who was the, the, the group of participants that we wanted to elicit implicit adaptation, they received the feedback instantaneously after crossing this 10 centimeter distance from the body. Perfect. I'd like to add in on that. So this, this effect of delay, and you can think about, we think that this implicit adaptation effect. So when they see the, the cursors off to the side, they don't know, but their hand is attempting to counteract that, that error, even though they can't do it, because the hand still moves. And you just had recently a podcast with uh, JT and Rich Ivory, um, where they, I think you guys talked about that procedure in, in detail. And we think that this, this adaptation effect is linked to cerebellar function. And if you put a delay on this, somewhere between 500 milliseconds and a second, it seems like that's outside potentially, if you can think about like a trace window, right? In, in terms of like eye blink condition, a trace window of where error signal would be eligible for the cerebellum to contribute. And if it can't do that because it's too long, it's a second or two seconds, um, then your only hope, right, would then be to counteract it. Right. And so that's what like works in the in the, the delay one It's basically take off what we think maybe is the cerebellum offline. And so then they have to explicitly correct or at least deliberate on what the, the error was. And so by trying to do these two, you know, trying to look at this error signal in two different ways with this with delay, we can then somewhat dissociate the contributions of two different ways that you could approach the, the task. Fascinating. You know, Carla and Jordan, you, you kind of anticipated some of my questions already because one question was, you know, what's the advantages of, of having a virtual environment? And I think that's very, very clear that it allows you to precisely manipulate error signaling and, and movements, et cetera, expectations. And, uh, but what are the disadvantages of a virtual reality? Could you comment on that? Well, I think, I think the one... Um... One thing I wanted to use virtual reality. So I, as you mentioned in the, the, the beginning is that there's been a lot of emphasis on, let's say the motor response or the correction of the motor response. And many tasks basically 
um, because they've been planar reaching movements um, in a horizontal plane, or they've only tested one depth, that any kind of perceptual difference you'd have would basically be held constant across the conditions or the discrepancies are so small that you can't tell. And so if you wanted to look at how depth information was somehow the error was going to be affected by what your presumed depth information is that you have available to you, then you'd have to like somewhat move the person from like environment to environment. Right. And here under VR, we can control everything that the person sees. Right. And we can flip it on one second. Now, we didn't do this in the task. If you try to do this in the VR thing, like you flip the scenes all the time, people will get this like compression. You can just feel this effect of depth changing too much. And it's a little I don't want to say maybe it's nauseating for some people, but let's say it's it's not um, you're not happy. Right. And even when we were designing the uh, the environment, um, I was sitting in the, the chair and Carlo was trying to like put the camera angle where it like match where my head was. Right. You have to do this in virtual reality. Um, to make the scene, if you moved it at all, you get this motion effect, right? And we actually quite had quite a fun of rotating, somewhat rotating like laterally the camera angle a little bit uh, would cause this like you'd actually jerk the other way because it's so immersive when you get in there. Um, and so I think one aspect of the virtual reality, right, is you can control everything they can see. You can change it on them with, with relative ease. Um, it does have its challenges because you're looking at the screen in reality it's here right it, it, it's right at your nose right and so there's some effect of like staring so close right that you have this and then we you know you can design the scene to make it look like you're looking far away but in reality it's right by the screen i think that causes some some uh discomfort or whatever some some weird feeling i don't know if carla wants to talk about that more and you get these accommodation effects that will happen at this this uh, viewing distance i can imagine that your insights will be great for the gaming industry because they probably want to understand how real is a virtual reality and how can you really improve the reality of it so you actually get nauseated and all these uh, autonomic responses that that are associated with the movement etc so i think there's there's so much insights that you can gain fascinating you you mentioned in your paper that deaf perception is far from accurate you know why why is it And, and it's so critical to be accurate, correct? And why is it not accurate? Well, because uh, so that perception depends on a lot of factors, right? So it's not just a straightforward process that we know all the uh, mechanisms and all the input, how the input relates to the output. So it's not a coherent or a consistent experience overall. So, you know, just anecdotally, if you, if you, if you grab a, a, a group of people and you ask them how far an object is, is from them, each one of them, or a building, and you, you'll get an, an, incredibly, uh, an incredible variety of responses. I mean, the, the, and, and this has to do with many reasons that are both cognitive and, and also a little bit more low level. So consider that at the, at, the more, at the more general abstract level, consider that culture could be also one, one very easy very easy factor. So uh, maybe pe people thinking with different unit of measurement. And so they approximate their, their perception of their distance, their estimate of their distance based on different uh, granularity, dif different, different ways of dividing space based on their culture, based on the, on, the, on the environment in which they grew up. But to be more technical, the, that perception depends on a series of, of signals that the brain receives that are uh, both extra retinal and retinal. And Each one of these uh, depth cues, as they're called, is um, the brain has different sensitivity to them. 
So for example, the virgins, the rotation of the eyes, uh, this one is a, uh, is a direct cue typically uh, to distance. You know, um, imagine, imagine you, you're looking at your own finger and then you move it uh, closer or farther away from, from, from the nose. Uh, you, you'll see that your eyes will rotate accordingly. So this is like a very intuitive signal that the brain picks up to get a sense uh, that what we're looking at is at a certain distance from our face. Uh, you can have you can have different strategies as well. So maybe um, we can maybe someone some person can be more used to to uh, relating a certain object uh, to the other objects in the scene. And so because I know that uh, I don't know a can of Coca Cola uh, is is I expect it to be of a certain size. Then if I if somebody asks me how big another object that a box that's next to it is, well, then they would say, you know, they could reason in terms of, you know, relative to that uh, kind of Coke, uh, that that box may be so-and-so, you know? And some other people might not be that expert uh, uh, at using the same types of strategy. And that's, uh, that's yet another factor that can distinguish between people, you know, that can generate this greater, greater and uh, variety in responses when it comes to that perception. But, you know, uh, in addition to extra retinal signals that are rather straightforward, um, you also have other uh, signals that are that are retinal, and this is even more complicated if you think about it, because um, retinal signals are distinguished between two main categories, right? So you you got the the, the pictorial depth cues that they're usually find in paint. They're related to what the um, the painters and the and the movie directors are usually uh, exploiting in order to convey a sense of depth in in in, in these artificial scenes. So you, uh, you you can find shadow patterns that help reconstructing the shape of an object uh, or the relationship between two objects in space. You can use texture gradients to get a sense of the foreshortening of a surface. Um, you can get occlusion. So if an object is in front of another, then it, it'll certainly create this sort of, um, it, it'll break the structure of the, of the object that's behind, right? So the brain can pick up this sense of oh okay the one that the one that I can see in full shape is is probably in front of the other one that I see that has a broken shape, and of course you you can have motion parallax you know as when you when you travel on a train the classic the classic example right you travel on a train you look outside of the window, and the trees that are close to the train are zipping in front of you and the ones that are farther away they're they're, they're slowly slowly drifting, and that gives you a you know a greater sense of uh, the landscape how far the objects are from you. So essentially anything that can be projected on the retina or on a, on, a, on a 2D surface, as a matter of fact, can potentially give uh, an impression of depth. And so you can, you can get a lot of them. And by the way, this is also why, you know, we call them the molecular cues because you can actually have the, the experience of depth just, just by using one eye by, by exploiting pictorial information. So, mm -hmm. um, and then you can have, then you have by binocular depth cues. So, you, you, you know, in addition to having one eye, we actually have uh, two eyes. So, so the brain can compare how different elements in the visual scene are, project differently on the, on the, on the regions of the, of the, of the eyes. So um, the bottom line is there's so much information for just one unique experience that is that perception and so many layers uh, of computations from, from very basic integration, how these this depth cues integrate together to higher order, higher level of, of processing, such as, you know, how do I personally estimate things based on my experience in life? 
so it makes it pretty easy to to understand why that perception ends up being such a such a mess basically <laughs> mm -hmm. such a complicated such a complicated experience and then, and then you have the depth you, once you're making an estimate of depth right any kind of object that's in that scene can be scaled to like determine what its size if you don't know what the object is so let's say in this case we had this dartboard just you know this this virtual circle and you make this estimate based upon all these pictorial cues and texture gradients and this linear perspective and the bar stools that were in the tavern scene that defines what the size of that target would be right and so that was part of like the perceptual task of saying okay if you see it this far in this scene how big do you think it is and why this would then matter for the let's say motor adaptation process is that if you saw that you're off by some degree is that also being scaled by your estimate of depth? Like, so you now think the error is smaller or larger. And I, I, maybe I'll get myself into trouble on this. I just like it because it's compelling, but I'm not, I'm not a perception expert. Um, but I think the one that's most fascinating to me is the moon illusion, like where the moon can look really, really big on the horizon because you're using other objects that are on there to somewhat scale, right? But it's so far away when it's 250,000 miles away, right? And so you really don't have much to say on, right? But you use all the objects around the, the horizon. But then when it's at the top of the, of the azimuth, right? At the top of the sky, then it looks smaller, right? Because there's nothing else there for you to use. And that's somewhat like our no depth condition, right? It's just the target in the void of space, right? And so you have no way of, to, to create a percent, like a, to give a, a reliable estimate of depth and so you may have some perceptual instabilities of what that size is, but then, you know, when the moon is closer on the horizon and now it looks like a different size. And so that's wow. kind of like, to me, what I thought we were somewhat doing by doing the bar scene. And so we can get an estimate of say, hey, did you, how far did you miss, you know, did you miss by the moon kind of thing? You know, you know? this is so fascinating and, and you should really maybe look at this also in a developmental context, because, you know, I, I it might be totally wrong what I'm saying now, but there's, evidence that children when they watch tv they don't perceive it the same way like we do you know they cannot learn from the tv they need personal interactions and and maybe one reason is that their deaf perception hasn't learned so much that when they look at a at a screen that they can interpret this as 3d because it takes learning and comparing knowing how big a, a coke bottle is or something like this so so i think it would be really fascinating to look at this in a developmental context that what how many years do you need to perfect that you know yeah and the, i mean the other case too i, I think this is right i'm getting i'm not a developmentalist either so um i think that they also have problems with their vestibular ocular reflex and so they don't have such a stable image like so if they're looking at the tv it's not that stable right and so it'd be somewhat hard to integrate information across it and then when they're in the, let's say the natural environment, they usually grab stuff and they hold on to it, right? And they bring it close to their face, right? So you just occupying 80% of their visual field, plus they're getting proprioceptive input from the hands, which could then be used to, as another signal to stabilize the retinal image. And so you can see that kind of develop over, over time as they, they stabilize the image might be. A, yeah, it's so fascinating. You know, and, and also often people like parents interpret if the, the kid is staring at the TV, as oh they're really engaged in it but the fact is they have a hard time interpreting it it's like lots of colors coming in etc and and they're staring because they're getting stressed about this you know so it's i think this is a fascinating topic to 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 follow up uh, in a developmental context so and uh, 
Now, can you tell us about the interaction between explicit learning and implicit uh, motor adaptation and, and how these processes operate and integrate error information with regards to what we just discussed, the visual depth? Yeah, so I would say this like from the, like the, the short history is that most of, I'd say in terms of motor adaptation for now over a hundred years since Hemholtz, um, it was somewhat kind of believed to be implicit. You, you do it automatically, right? And they had the classic studies by Stratton and then Kohler where they did an inversion of the, of the visual field. So what was up was down and what was left was right. And they eventually were able, like after five days of wearing a goggle like this, able to ride a bike and read, um, which is remarkable, right? And so there's only been like two, two published reports on that level of uh, immersion into an experiment. Um, and then also patient HM, uh, was able to learn this mirror tracing task and without having any kind of declarative memory for doing the task, right? Being surprised, you know, the report is that he was surprised that he was able to do so well in it, but he had done it two days, you know, in a row and he didn't remember on by the third day that he had done it at all, right? And so a lot of it was thought to be implicit, but you're aware of the error when you see it, right? So if you see that you're off the left or to the right by some amount, right? And you could either wait for implicit to try to correct that and you could spend the next five days doing the task of throwing the dartboard you know throwing the dart dartboard um or you could say i see that i'm off by some estimate of what i think it is and then i'm going to make a correction so i see i'm off to the left by what i guess is let's say 10 feet well i'm going to try to throw the dart now 10 feet to the right right to, to correct for this um and so that can be a fast process that would correct for errors. And we kind of think that the errors that the, let's say explicit uh, system, or let's say explicit re-aiming of where your intended goal is, um, is based upon your task performance. So if you, you know, it's not working out, try something else. And you may not know exactly like what's exactly happening in the task, that it's a rotation or something like that, but you could use a heuristic of I'm off to the left, go more to the right, right? I'm off to the right, go more to the left. Right. While the implicit system we think is using this what we is a sensory prediction error, your action didn't unfold as you planned. And that that can be used as like a little incremental change to adjust an estimate of the mapping, the vision motor mapping that you have. Um, if you want to get more complicated, people talk about this in terms of an internal model framework of being updated. And that would allow you to like, you know, get this, this let's say, reliable, fast executed vision motor map. You can do things like you normally do with you know, using your mouse cursor and stuff like that. You'll have some kind of model or mapping for how that's gonna work and for the, your whole body and for any other kind of thing that you'll do. But if it's something big that happens, it would, might take too long for you to modify or develop that. And so then you can quickly re-aim or, or change your intended goal. And that's what we kind of think that explicit re-aiming is doing. And we, the nice thing about this task is it can be operationalized in terms of an angle, which is the performance metric of the task. Other things, like if you were studying uh, gate adaptation, it may be more difficult to know what is someone doing explicitly to try to correct for some step asymmetry. If you're walking on the, the people mover at the airport, right, and it feels funny, what are people thinking about when they're doing that? You, it may be difficult to quantify. And so there's been like less progress, but in this visual motor rotation task with prism goggle tasks um, that we've been able to have a little bit more, uh, let's say, advanced because it's in the same dimension. Very cool. Along these lines, now, could you explain maybe to, to the listener and myself the difference between sensory motor adaptation and motor skill learning? Um, I think this is kind of hotly debated or controversial right now. Um, and I think it's become, I think there's overwhelming support, in my opinion, that there's somewhat of a difference between what you might call de novo skill learning and then adaptation. 
And so in these, let's say in these adaptation tasks, you already potentially know how to reach with your hand to a target, right? Or potentially you already know how to throw a dart. And so when we put these perturbations on, we're perturbing you away from what your current mapping or model is. And so your performance is bad and then you're corrected, right? You bring it back to where you were before. In like de novo skill learning, I kind of think of it as a, you actually don't know, you don't have any kind of model for how the thing the task works. And so you have to discover what that is, right? And so you have to set up what are the parameters of the task? What are the action outcome associations? And that tends to be a longer process. And so that would be what you're like, as your skill would go along, you'd set those up and then you'd practice and practice and practice. And you would reduce what we think is probably your motor variance over time. And so in these tasks, adaptation tasks, we typically don't see variance change. So they're really not improving in their reaching skill. It's not probably long enough for you to do. You don't have to do this for hours and days and weeks to see a change in your, your variance uh, to a level that you might think is an improvement in skill. It's more of just a return, like the, the mean back to where it wanted to be, to be close to what the task performance was. And so people have typically looked at what kind of the, the old um, standard of a speed accuracy trade-off function. And so are you able to do something faster and more accurate? Would If you shift along that speed accuracy trade-off function and it gets better, that's thought to be more of a skill learning outcome. If you move within the same function, um, that might be more of an adaptation-like function. Fantastic. I think you answered my question already, but, but you used the tavern scene to simulate death. Why did you do this? Well, I mean, we're, because we wanted to have something that all the American students would be familiar with. But uh, no, in reality, um, <laughs> <laughs> so th th there were a few things that we wanted to make sure that we would accomplish with this, uh, with this stimuli. And we actually had a little bit of back and forth with the reviewers uh, on this. Uh, because the idea was the so the, the the original idea was to have a version of the 3D motor task, uh, sorry of the of the VMR task, the visual motor rotation task that would be in 3D as opposed to has uh, how it's always been traditionally in the research on motor on motor learning, and we wanted to have a a scene an environment that could be as rich in depth cues as possible to, so that we could maximize the depth information. And, and perhaps take it all away in the so-called no depth condition, such that the contrast between having or not having the depth information was, would be so, so stark that uh, something uh, hopefully would have happened. And in order to have this 3D version of the, of the reaching task, we thought of something like uh, in depth, uh, we thought of something like where, where, you, where you're reaching forward and hence the dart, kind of gesture or at least the goal or throw of throwing something that's in front of you seemed the most uh, uh, intuitive in that case. But in any point did we think that we actually wanted to reproduce the dart, the gesture of throwing a dart at, as it actually unfolds in real life. So um, we are aware that this is, you know, that the throwing a dart in real life entails a certain coordination of the arm and, and it involves a certain number of joints and stuff like that. This is not, this is not what we were looking for. We were just looking for a, a situation that would, be, that would not be abstract for, for, a, for a participant so that they would remain engaged for many number of trials and that would still be purposeful for them while we rendered this 3D version of the visual motor rotation task. Wonderful. And I ask you another question. So what component of 
the motor learning and death perception will be affected by alcohol consumption. Like if someone drinks alcohol in the tavern, you know, your, your accuracy will go, is it the learning component? Is it the, you know, which component? Can you dissect it? And then maybe following up on that question is which component is affected by distraction? You know, I'm thinking, for example, these games where Michael Jordan has a three-pointer, has to hit the, the basket, but in the background, the whole crowd is, is shouting, yelling, and showing balloons. What aspects are affected? That, that you have to overcome to be still accurate? Well, I'll take a stab at the, uh, the alcohol one. So, and so I, I think it's clear that if you have a lot of alcohol, right, your performance is going to degrade. And if the symptoms you develop are like really identical to individuals that have spinal cerebellar ataxia. So they have, a lot of them have a genetic uh, mutation that causes their cerebellum to degenerate over time. And what looks like you get all these coordination issues and all the things that you get when you're drunk. So you have slurred speech, you have ataxia like itself as like, you know, in coordination that you might have like your hand might shake, you have postural problems, right? Those will all happen. And we think that those, those are often linked to the cerebellar function and that there may be some toxicity with alcohol. And they, people have looked at um, long-term alcohol abuse and they see that there can be generation of the cerebellum with alcohol use. It also, I think it dilutes your otolith organs as well. Like the, the alcohol gets into the otolith organs and it changes like the, or the little bits of calcium that are in there. And so that kind of can, can give you posture problems. And then even for more like abuse, um, you, you know, you would get degeneration of like the, the cortex too. So you could think of all the, the prefrontal cortex, um, you know, executive function would be, would be hurt. And so one you could think is that you'd actually hit both. The explicit re-aiming would be poor. And also the implicit adaptation would be poor because it's, you know, if you with, with high doses of alcohol, I think anecdotally that low amounts, like, you know, like one or two beers or whatever in the tavern won't affect you all that much, but you'll, you'll get over, you know, some kind of blood alcohol level that will, would start to start to degrade performance. Right. I think there's also a lot of like, uh, you could go look probably on YouTube and find a lot of musicians that played really, really drunk. And sometimes they, they play the wrong key, right? Uh, all sorts of behaviors, you know, that comes out. And those are really, really rote, memorized things they might be doing, like the song they played every night for the last four years, right? That they start to uh, make mistakes. Maybe it helps also against the uh, freight, you know, like stage freight or something. So, so it may, might be actually pretty good. It, yeah, it I mean, I don't know. Uh, Carlos is more of our musician here. Um, and you talk about like, it might take the edge off, right? The having yeah. the one or two, but if you went, for the six or whatever that you're going to do for the full six pack, um, you're probably not going to be great. Yeah. I think also in like terms of distraction, I actually think there you would see a distinction that the implicit adaptation system would be completely fine. From what we can tell, it looks pretty stereotyped and somewhat immune to a lot of like task relevant things. But I think on the explicit side, yeah, you could, could make poor decisions. I think anything that would be someone on the line of executive function, if you were being distracted, then, that would cause that explicit re-aiming. Mm -hmm. That's very fascinating. You know, and, and I think you talked about cerebellum, et cetera, but, but maybe can you talk more about, you know, what is the role of the CNS here? You know, what areas do you think contribute to which aspect of this task that you're studying? 
Yeah, so I, I think in terms of implicit, there's been a lot of work um, done on trying to identify what as, what parts of the cerebellum might be contributing to this, right? So we see the same with those same individuals, the spinal cerebellar ataxia, will show poor adaptation. Not only are they not coordinated in hemataxia, but also they'll show poor adaptation in these visual motor rotation tasks or prism uh, adaptation tasks. Um, and that somewhat seems to be into the, the posterior uh, lateral zone of the, the cerebellum. And there's other tasks, like force field adaptation tasks and gait adaptation tasks will be more midline and then the, the uh, anterior part of the cerebellum or kind of like the older part of the cerebellum. And we know from some of the work uh, like Peter Strick that areas of that posterior lateral lobe not only would be serving these kind of motor functions, but they also connect to frontal areas and parietal cortices, which would then be give you an issue with potentially the explicit re-aiming. So it's a little bit on the, I think an open question is how much the cerebellum contributed to both of these processes. And uh, my former postdoc and, and I and, and colleagues um, have a paper in, in JNP about explicit re-aiming issues with individual spinal cerebellar ataxia. Um, and so they not only show an implicit adaptation problem, they also show an explicit re-aiming problem. And we think that might have to do with some some new work on thinking that the cerebellum is contributing to working memory. And so if the cerebellum is de degenerated a little bit, you might actually have problems with working memory and you think, well, I got to hold this error at this particular target location, you know, so the next time I see it, and if it's just, you know, you, you go from a capacity of four or six items you might be able to hold, then you know, I'm down to two or three, then you're going to forget that one and you show somewhat of this unstable behavior and re-aiming. Yeah, so it's, I think it's somewhat of an open question, but certainly the implicit is much more to the cerebellum, the posterior lateral lateral zone. And then I, we think that explicit re-aiming is anything that could be working memory, executive function. Yeah, I, I will add to this that, you, um, especially when it comes to the interaction between that perception and motor learning, because um, funny enough, I just realized we haven't we haven't told the punchline here. So what we found, <laughs> what we found here is that we did find a modification of motor learning uh, for the explicit uh, group. So for the group that could that was able to uh, re-aim, such that when they were presented with the stimulus in the tavern scene, they actually tended to sort of compensate more relative to when they were in the in the in the nondescript environment. But we did not find the same modulation for the group that received the clamped feedback, as in. Uh, suggesting that implicit implicit learning is 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 not sensitive to to, to depth information variation of, of that information, and if you think of how the depth for that perception for action is 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 actually distributed in the in the in the in the human cortex, that could actually make sense in the sense that we know that uh, most of the of this processing happens in the parietal in the, in the dorsal areas, so which which are highly associative. Um, which so they're very likely to involve processes that are cognitive and high level. So uh, whereas we don't really know, um, and, and Jordan can perfect this information for me, but we don't really know whether the the, uh, the cerebellum actually can can even receive uh, such a complex type of information from the little sensory input that it has. So, you know, the inferior olives nuclei and stuff like that. They, they're probably too low level to be able to carry such a complex information uh, like like depth, like the sense of that, which requires, as we were saying before, integrating lots of cues, lots of information, extra retinal, retinal. It's it, this, this, this apparent dissociation that we found between explicit and, and implicit model learning seems to make sense on a neurological level. 
although we do want to explore this further in the future. So it's, it's not a conclusive statement, I would say. Great, Carlo. You know, this might be a little bit of a difficult question, but you're talking about different areas of the cortex, etc. And you point out that some compensatory corrections were subconscious. Now, my question is, does it help to be conscious? Or in fact, is it good that you let the movement and the visual integration be subconscious? Yeah, I think that the kind of errors I would say that we typically encounter every day. Let's say, for example, the, the piano one. Um, your, your difference you might encounter, it, if you switch between pianos, there may be a different uh, weight to the keys, and so the key velocity would be different, right? And it seems like it would be hard for you to somewhat come up with some kind of cognitive strategy for what you're going to do that's going to be precise, right? So you may always want to say ignore it and let yourself calibrate. Um, and I don't know, like, if that like in the terms of piano, how much that might matter. But you can just think about also like switching between somebody else's keyboard using their laptop for a minute and their buttons are like slightly in different configuration or their mouse cursor is a little bit faster or slower than yours. You see it, but you basically say, oh, well, right? And you kind of don't do anything about it. And then 10 minutes later from using it, that's now your new normal, right? And you go back to your computer and you have what we call an after effect, right? So now you've transferred the gain or the, the mouse configuration to, to your computer. And so there, I think for these kind of small adjustments that the implicit system can make, it would be great. And it can do it automatically for you. And it does, seems to do it like really fast uh, in that sense. Yeah, once you start to think like overthink this, you can get into run into trouble, right? With, even yeah. with all, even performance anxiety, it might happen. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why, you know, every piano is different. And, and you're totally hitting an important point for, for these people. Now... Another question, you are using averages typically, you know, like in, in reporting your behavior. How is the individual response variable? Like you can have a good day, you can have a bad day. And how much of a factor is this in studying these very important uh, questions? I can tell from the experience, I remember the data, looking at the individual data, uh, first off, the data was extremely variable. So there was an, an incredible variety uh, uh, from between subjects, so uh, it, so that it required actually a lot of exploratory analysis and and you know debating about whether we were looking at something that was coherent among the participants or 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 some of them were just uh, guessing somehow, let alone just just having come on, having come over to you know to earn the pay or the credits. So th that's something that we saw in the that's that's something that we saw in the data. Although it's pretty typical in this kind of in this kind of experiments, but it is also true that certainly certainly if you had a certain especially I think especially for 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 explicit learning, um, if you as you said if you had a bad day or a good day, that will probably have an impact on how you coordinate or re, or re redistribute uh, your your attention while doing such a task. And maybe this goes back to the to the Michael Jordan example of before, you know, distraction, because not only do you need to be competent or skilled in a certain in a certain task, but if, if there are distractors, which can be external or, or, or internal, you know, um, then your attention is split or, or is divided. And, and therefore, the processing of the visual information or, or whatever sensory information is required for the movement that you are about to learn is suffers in turn. So I think Part, at least, of the, of the variability that we saw in the, in the individual data has to do with what the students were, were thinking during, during the experiment. And I will add 
um, in fact, as a, as a final note, that it may also have been that um, it was something related to being immersed in that visual environment, because as much as the virtual reality was compelling and certainly created a stable sense of being in a certain location, they were also aware, it also creates this sort of feeling that you are in two places at the same time. You know, you are, you're in a, in a physical location that's outside your realm of perception at that time. And there's this sort of mask superimposed to it, which is perfectly coherent in, in our case anyway, with your proprioception, but you know that it's a simulation. And so I don't wanna, I don't wanna end up talking about theory of simulation here because we, this could be another podcast, but uh, I'm, I'm just trying to find sources for that particular variance that we found in the data. Interesting, yeah. And we've seen, oh, sorry, we've seen, um... People are seem to be anytime we've done across day studies that people are there's some variation between days, let's say in terms of their implicit adaptation um, amount, but they're relatively like stable. They might like if you're the top adapter on day one, you'll probably be the top adapter on day two, but you might be numerically a little bit different. The absolute value, but your relative rank seems to be the same. And we see like across the gamut with people can adapt very little to way more than they need to. And that seems like a somewhat of a, a, a trait-based thing rather than, at least on the implicit side, was state-based. And I think with the explicit, it could certainly be state. If you were distracted and stuff like that, it could go away. There's one thing I want to say, if we talk about the Michael Jordan thing, I always think that someone should have done this, right? You could have all those people with that, with those like the, the flags, where wherever those like tubes they knock together, if they all move them in a coordinated way, it would cause a, a <laughs> issue, right? I wonder if they would like if anybody could get the crowd to all right now, right when they go about to release, to move in the same direction. It should call a motion. Uh. <laughs> that is mean, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my millions of dollars are on the line. Right? <laughs> I know, I know. Wow. Okay, terrible idea. No, but great idea. <laughs> now, maybe let's let's talk about the next steps from here. Where, where you want to take it to study? Maybe Carlo and then uh, Jordan. I think I want to go back to the, the, the important point for me to uh, understand whether implicit learning is truly uh, unaffected by that perception or not. So my background is, is mostly on how that perception supports uh, prehensive actions like uh, reach to grasp uh, or pointing. And it, it kind of makes sense to me that something like an explicit pre-aiming, which involves uh, the uh, the analysis of that information at a perceptual level is also affected as we as we have found it. I'm not fully convinced. I'm not I'm not finished, as they say in Italian. I I, I don't buy at this point uh, the idea that um, the implicit learning is completely resistant to variation of the of of, the, of that information in the visual array. So my next step uh, would be to design an experiment, which we have attempted in the past, as a matter of fact but to, to design an experiment that, that tackles this question more specifically and see exactly how uh, the various depth cues may or may not have an impact on, on sensory motor adaptation. Very cool. Jordan. One, the one thing I, I thought of like when we were doing this, this task is that when, as I was saying, like, you know, you, when you make the depth estimate, it's gonna scale what the size is of what you're you're trying to do. If it's it's if you're trying to hit something like in your frontal parallel plane, you're making the estimate of what that depth is. Um, you can have a different psychological or subjective evaluation of how good or bad you were at that task, right? And so I could think it almost go either way, right? So if you were trying to throw a you know a dart 
across a football field, if you missed by 15 feet, you might actually think that that's not so bad, right? Uh, but if you miss 50, you know, you can take that same image, whatever the dark, the size would have to be, you know, whatever, 100 feet wide, and you bring it up to five feet from you. Now it's only a couple inches. Um, if you miss by 15 feet there, that's going to be really, really bad, right? Um, and so I kind of feel like this, if you think about this error in terms of a, a translation or like a Cartesian type of error, it has a very different interpretation to you as opposed to an angle, because you could have that angle be the same. Right, the same that gives you the, you know, the, 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 like a 12 degree error can be a couple inches in front of you or it can be a couple hundred feet, right? It could be thousands of miles difference, right? If you make this, this kind of thing. And so we, we got into this kind of thought experiment about what happens if you had an implicit system that was, didn't care about the depth information, always does some amount of that angle. You can create wildly fluctuating behaviors at long distances, like in terms of golf or something like that, where you are in this 300 meters away or 400 meters away, your correction could be 30 meters, right? Which you might not actually want to do. And so there could be some kind of uh, interesting um, effect here. And so I, I'm along with Carlo on, is the depth information, can it somewhat modulate the implicit system? Because it seems like you could you get yourself into trouble where you have really unstable behaviors at far distances. Maybe that's why it takes golfers their whole lifetime to put the tiny ball in the hole far away, right? <laughs> yeah. You have to suppress suppress implicit adaptation. I don't know. Yeah, and that's why why probably it's so fascinating to watch yeah. this. And and uh, my son is a ultimate frisbee guy, and you know they have to take account also the wind and the direction of the angle of the the frisbee, and it's just so fascinating how they can do it naturally without yeah. even yeah. thinking about it. I should take a, 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 um, when I first started doing this stuff, when we were thinking about re-aiming, volitionally changing where your aim would go, I was, I was studying these people with ataxia and it was, they had a conference up in Chicago and my family's from Chicago. And, uh, and so I needed age match controls, right? So these individuals typically are in their fifties to sixties. And that's really hard to get individuals, their age match controls because they're typically working and they have families and they're not going to come in for $12 an hour to do this. Right. So I recruited some of my family members and one was my, my stepdad. And so I had him perform the task because I think he at the time, maybe he was like 78 or 80. And I had somebody at that, that, that age group. And when I was, after I had him do the task, I described it to him and he said, oh, that's Kentucky windage, what I'm doing. If I see him off the left, I estimate what I think was off by and I go a little bit more to the right, right? And uh, in that paper, right, I think we got, we, we plugged in the Kentucky windage into the discussion <laughs> based upon his, uh, his thing. But yeah, they take into account, you know, all of this, right? All this information to, to, to yeah. adjust the behavior. And that would all be that explicit re-aiming side, right? Yeah. As we, I think someone, yeah, yeah, I think it's a more Thank God. Yeah, lots of <laughs> it never gets boring. So what are the important take-home messages you want listeners to remember? Again, let's go. Carlo first, maybe, and then Jordan? Yeah, to me, the most important message of, uh, of the article is that, you know, we don't have to forget uh, that humans are biological creatures that interact with the 3D world, uh, because that's basically the starting point for the, for the whole investigation in the, in the first place. So uh, we looked at the, uh, most of the literature on modern learning, and we, and we realized that uh, the traditional approach is to investigate the center outreaching task, uh, but but that they happen on on 2D surfaces. Whether it's uh, it's a mirror that you're overlooking while ho you know holding a robotic arm, or it's just a tablet where you're holding a stylus, uh, and these kind of tasks. 
but you know eventually the our experience with the, with the with the real world is is of a three-dimensional world and and every moral learning that we actually experience happens in that environment so i think this is the the the, the most important message that this this uh, this article should leverage and in fact i i you know because it Another critical point about uh, about uh, that perception and and how it relates to to behavior and and as you as you as you were pointing out, Nino yourself, is that our body grows and changes uh, throughout the entire life. So we don't actually know how this happens during the development and how relationship with the environment change during the development. Uh, and I think this is a, a, a f- the right moment to actually acknowledge the the, the third author of this. Uh, uh, in fact, the second author uh, of this paper, uh, Fulvio Domini, uh, because part of the theory on, on, on how the depth cues are integrated um, uh, that, that, we, that we exploited and, and we reasoned about while, while trying to make a sense of the, of the results that we got uh, was based on, on, on his model of depth integration, which, which is a model that basically allows depth integration to generate an accurate per- depth perception, as we were talking before, it allows depth estimates to be to to be uh, underestimated or overestimated, without a special need for that perception to be accurate necessarily. In fact, according to his model, that perception is uh, is allowed, can happen, can emerge in your day to day life, but it usually is modeled as a special case of that perception because it usually it's usually found at distances from the body uh, where we typically grasp objects. So. Where, where we are used to interact with objects and throughout the entire life. So as, as our body changes, uh, our relationship with where the objects are actually perceived changes, changes in turn. So uh, there's, whole, there's this whole conversation around the, uh, the, the role of that perception for modern learning that, uh, that I think is, is the most important point personally for, for this article. Wonderful. Well, I think, I think Carlo really summarized the, the main take home of the, the paper really well. And I think what I just go for more of a little bit of applied thought about it is that we use this, we put all these cues, if we use the bar scene to have the bricks on the wall and, and whatever those metal things around the ceiling, right? That make it look that way and the bar stools. And you keep adding all these cues in. And when you add more and more of these cues in, you're gonna get more and more of this depth effect. And you can somewhat almost see it on the paper. If you print off the paper and look at it, it actually does feel like the target size changes and it does feel like it's more into the page. And we've seen it compellingly like in the PowerPoint, sometimes whatever the size is, you can see, wow, it looks like it changes size when you flicker between them just from the, the cues. And so you add these cues in and you're trying to develop the VR. Uh, VR doesn't seem to ever get off the ground, right? Like it, like not, not every kid has a VR system. When I was growing up, every kid had the Nintendo, you know? And not everybody has the VR system. And it could be the case that when you start to make this more and more realistic, you're adding all these cues in, you're actually really warping what they're, what they're seeing, right? And you, you might have to dial in for whatever that distance, as Carlo was saying, you might want to dial in the cues in certain ways so that it has this more, let's say, accurate position of compression of space and how this is happening. And so that would be my, my applied thing where I think that, you know, we can start to potentially change these cues around to get people to interact with objects in that virtual environment without making crazy corrections and things like that. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. There's lots to improve, obviously. And I can imagine that these gamers, they're like probably doing way better with your system than, than a normal person. So 
Yeah, thank you so much. I think it's time to go to the tavern and uh, and enjoy the day. So so many, many thanks, Carlo and Jordan. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having us. I think it was our first time doing a podcast. Yeah. yeah great. <laughs> we'll we'll ready to do it. another one. We'll do more. You just uh, got a paper accepted. So it's time <laughs> for the next one. Okay. okay. Congratulations. That's All right, great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.